sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I love your Praise the Lord, everybody, and welcome to Thy Word. And we are uh, going to be in Genesis. Let's begin with prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Thy Word. We thank you for all that you are doing in the lives of your people. God, I ask that your presence be here tonight, Lord, to illuminate our understanding, to cause us, Lord, to hunger more, to thirst more for the living bread, the Word of God. I pray in the name of of Jesus, for you are the word, ha Deber, you are the word, which was from the beginning, amen, and all things were made by you, by the word of the Lord. We love you, we appreciate you, and thank you, Lord, for letting us make it all the way through the book of Genesis, in Jesus' name, amen. And we have come to the conclusion of the seed plot of the Bible, Genesis, amen. Let's give ourselves a hand. Now, I know you all signed up thinking that Genesis would be the class on Genesis and 65 classes later, we'd all be done with the Bible. But that is obviously not the way it's going to be, is it? And, uh, but can I tell you, before we get started here, that you can congratulate yourself because in my experience, you, if you have watched or been a part of thy word from the beginning till now, you have gone through 21 sessions, or you will go through 21 sessions tonight. You now know more about the book of Genesis than 95% of the people in the United States. I guarantee you that, and I have been around, believe me. And now, you, uh, when you watch uh, uh, Bible stories about the book of Genesis, you're going to spot all of the errors and all of the problems that I spot, and now you... Are now ruined for all of the Hollywood movies and uh, next week we start Exodus and uh, so we're gonna ruin you for the story of Moses when you watch that amen but I am excited about Exodus I have been excited about Exodus since Genesis chapter 1 it is my favorite book to teach uh, because it represents our salvation our coming out our coming out in the natural a uh, natural salvation and also are coming out in the spiritual side of things. You know, all these people in Genesis, when they died, they had to go somewhere. And where they went was kind of a holding place called Sheol. And uh, we'll, we'll learn about that as we come. But I can tell you that they had an exodus from Sheol when Jesus went down into Sheol and led captivity captive. He preached deliverance to those who were captive in Sheol and led out a spiritual exodus. I know most of us have not heard that, but that is what the Bible teaches. Jesus went down into Sheol. Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's what uh, Peter quoted uh, concerning Jesus, that his soul would not be left in hell. When Jesus died, he went down and led captivity captive. He preached deliverance to the captives and had a mass exodus of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of those who believed in him and brought them out of that place to be with him. Isn't that interesting? Praise God. And he defeated, he conquered the grave, uh, which is generally what Sheol in Hebrew, Sheol, Sheolah is a question. So if I ask you a question, Sheolah, I'm asking you a question. And Sheol is the great question. It's what happens after life. And uh, the interesting thing is the Lord Jesus actually deals with that. We are saved from the big question. Death is no longer a question for us. We know exactly the answer. We have the answer to the great question of death. But we are in Genesis part 21. We are in chapter 45. And Joseph had tested his brothers... 
and he has revealed himself to them. He showed real maturity and forgiveness to his brothers as we should. And they had treated him in a terrible way. Uh, but now they have uh, come together and they've wept together. And uh, we're in verse 9 where Joseph says, Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. Could you imagine what happened to Jacob when he heard those words from Joseph's brothers? Dad, we've got something to tell you. Not only is Joseph alive, but he is made ruler of the entire land of Egypt. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me. Thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. So finally the brothers are reunited. And uh, they, they have their emotion-filled meeting with weeping and conversation and the hatred that they used to have, the jealousy that they had for Joseph is now gone. And Joseph sends them back to their father and he sends them with uh, donkeys that are just laden with provisions for Jacob. And verse 25, And they went up out of Egypt and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive. And he is governor over all the land of Egypt, and Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. You've got to be lying to me. You've got to be pulling my leg. This is another deception, isn't it? And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons, which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. You know, I read this many years ago before I was a father, and it didn't have the same effect that it has on me now. But every father reads this and realizes the great emotion that Jacob was having to find out that his son, who was dead, is now alive Again, Amen. It brings us to the story of the prodigal son where the father said, My son was dead and is now alive. Let's come to chapter 46. And in chapter 46, Jacob journeys to Egypt. And we'll begin at verse 1. And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not, go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. I always find it strange that God remains silent in the lives of these great men of God. God could have any time come to Jacob and said, your son Joseph is alive. He could have removed that sorrow that he had. But Jacob required that sorrow. He required that breaking. He required the sifting as wheat in order to become Israel, the prince and power of with God. Sometimes God does that to us, doesn't he? He could remove our sorrow. He could remove our trial. He could remove our pain. But if he did that, we could not become the people of God that he wants us and needs us to be. And that's what he did to Jacob. And the Lord repeated the promise that his, he would make his family a great nation there in Egypt. And he also promised that he would bring that nation back again. Uh, God told Isaac, don't go down into Egypt. But now he told Jacob to go with the promise that they would someday return to the promised land. Verse 7, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought 
he with him in to Egypt. And here we have a long list of the names of the children of Israel who went down to Egypt. In total, and this is including the family of Jacob and his descendants and Joseph and his sons who were all ready in Egypt. The number of Israelites in Egypt is 70 souls. So that family of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac is now at the number 70. 70 souls went down into Egypt. We're going to start here at verse 29. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet, his, meet Israel, his father. And once again, I, I think it's interesting that Jacob is one of those characters where God gave him another name and then continued to call him the name that he had before. When, when It seems that when Jacob is full of faith and living a life of faith, a life following God, he's Israel. And when he's living in doubt and not living in faith, he's Jacob again. And the Bible says Israel uh, went down to uh, Egypt. Uh, he went to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen, and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because thou art yet alive. So it's been 22 years. For 22 years, Jacob believed that Joseph was dead. And the last time Joseph saw his father, he was, uh, Joseph was 17 years old. Now Joseph speaks to his brothers and he encourages them to tell Pharaoh that they are cattle raisers. The flock that you raise are cattle, not sheep. And the reason is because shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians, they are considered an abomination to the Egyptians. We're going to get into a little bit of that when we get into the book of Exodus. Can I tell you that to the world, shepherds are still an abomination. They don't like pastors. They don't like to be told what to do or where to go or where not to go. They don't like authority. Um, and a shepherd is an abomination to the world. Egypt represents the world and he tells them uh, to tell him you raise cattle and not shepherds but the at least the five brethren who meet Pharaoh they do tell them that they are shepherds that uh, they don't say we raise cattle they say that we raise sheep we are shepherds and this may actually be the reason why Egypt will eventually despise the children of Israel. And it's because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. So at first, Israel, the nation of Israel is very well received, but we will see in time that they become enslaved. And uh, even uh, uh, Egypt even attempts a type of genocide against the people of Israel. They find themselves in bondage. Uh, we come to chapter 47, and Jacob is now in Egypt, and Joseph brings him before Pharaoh. And what's interesting here is Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Now you go before a great man, the king, at this time, he, he could pretty much call himself the ruler of the free world. Or back then it probably wasn't a free world. But he was such a powerful man. He had the food and was obtaining the gold. He's already two years into the famine, and he is obtaining the wealth of the nations around him. But what's interesting here is that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't bless Jacob. Now, all Jacob really is here is the head of a family of 70 people. He's not a king. He's not a prince as far as the world is concerned. And Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 7 says, And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So Jacob considers himself to be higher in nobility than Pharaoh. Isn't that interesting? And it also happens to be true. 
Because Pharaoh may be the prince of the people, but Abraham is the prince of God. Can I tell you, Christians, that if we could get an idea of exactly who we are in position in the kingdom of God, nothing would stop us. In fact, I think it is one of the tools of the devil. The great question that he asked Jesus, basically, who do you think you are? You are not the son of God. And that's what he tells you. You are not a royal priesthood, but you are a royal priesthood. You have authority. You have dominion over his kingdom. Amen. You are the greater because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And as the years of famine continued, Joseph caused the greatness of Pharaoh and Egypt to increase as all Egypt sells their lands and their cattle to Pharaoh and all the nations exchange their wealth uh, with Egypt for food. And the Israelites prospered and were given possessions in Egypt. And Joseph provides bread for his father's house and he saves them from the famine. And Jacob now is a man of faith. Everything that he has gone through, most of it self-inflicted, now he has come to a place where he is finally Israel. He's finally living up to the name. And he made Joseph swear that Joseph would bury him where his fathers had been buried. And he was referring to the cave of Machpelah, which had been purchased by Abraham. Jacob desired to be buried in the land that God had promised him. Why? Because by faith, he knew he would be resurrected and he wanted to get up out of the grave in the promised land. Amen. And one day he will. Jacob will get up out of that grave. And now we have the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh in chapter 48. And it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee and I will make of thee a multitude of people and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession, an everlasting possession. Israel has not been replaced. Israel has an everlasting possession. You know, that doctrine that, that some people throw around that somehow the church has replaced Israel is simply not true. For uh, the church to replace the nation of Israel, God would have to be a major liar. God promised them to have this possession forever. And they will have that possession forever. And a son of Abraham, a son of David will rule yes. hallelujah the promise is still in effect the promise that God gave to David that that there would not cease to be a ruler of his line is still in effect and that ruler will rule without ceasing hallelujah and now thy two sons Ephraim and Manasseh which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee into Egypt are mine as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. I am adopting your, my grandsons as my sons. And not only are they my sons, but they are going to take the place of Reuben and Simeon, who now have the right to being the firstborn. Reuben lost his right. Simeon lost his right because of the great violence that he did in Shechem. And now it is going to Joseph. But not just Joseph, but Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So they are given the birthright, or Joseph is given the birthright by this adoption. So uh, Joseph gets a double portion. He gets a double blessing. He gets 
two tribes, as we talked about. There are actually by number 13 tribes of Israel, and two of them, Ephraim and Manasseh, are half-tribes. And thy issue which thou begettest after them shall be thine, and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. And as for me, verse 7, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in the way, when yet there was but a little way to come unto Ephrath, and I buried her there in the way of Ephrath. The same is Bethlehem. And we talked a little bit about that, uh, Bethlehem and Rachel weeping for her children because they are not in the time that Herod uh, tries to commit a form of genocide uh, to prevent the Messiah from being born. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said unto his father, They are my sons whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. Just like Isaac, isn't it? We've got Isaac who was blind. He could no longer see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. So Jacob is ready to give a blessing, much like Isaac. And just like his father Isaac, he could no longer see. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face. And lo, God has shewed me also thy seed. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim, in his right hand toward Israel's left hand. And Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near unto him. Joseph was deciding here the normal ritual, the normal custom that the eldest son would be blessed more than the youngest son. And so he brings the oldest son and he, uh, uh, Manasseh, he brings him to Jacob's right hand. And, of course, he brings Ephraim to his left hand. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named on them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw, by the way, this account in the book of Hebrews is, is the writer of the book of Hebrews has a faith chapter in, in Hebrews chapter 11 talking about the forefathers and the, the acts that they did by faith. And this is, act is what uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, who I believe is Paul, being that it's a trilogy of the first two books that Paul wrote, uh, but he uh, he chooses this as Jacob's great act of faith. And this was his reaching out for the continuation of God's promise. Hebrew chapter 11 and verse 21, if you want to reference that. And the very thing now that Jacob had once caused to happen by deception, he would do now on purpose. The greater blessing would be given to the younger, verse 17, and when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh's head. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand up on his head. So we see here that the right hand is the hand of the greater blessing. And we want to follow that right hand throughout the scriptures. There's a lot of revelation. And you will find out that whenever God references something in a particular way, it will continue throughout every book of the Bible. The right hand is the hand of blessing and of strength and of power. Okay? And Jesus was sitting on the right hand of God, wasn't he? That is not by accident. Uh, and his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Something has happened to Jacob. 
Jacob who was the deceiver, Jacob who had trouble believing, Jacob who allowed uh, all these other gods uh, in the countries around him to, uh, to, uh, to be in his family. They were carrying uh, the idols of these other gods. Now is a prophet. He is prophesying. He is telling the future. And, and moreover, he is correct. Everything that he says after this point is prophetic and is later proven to be true. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he set Ephraim before Manasseh. So Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Jacob chosen over Esau. Joseph was chosen over Reuben. And now Ephraim is chosen over Manasseh. And we continue to see how God chooses the latter before the former, don't we? Or the, the, the older, the younger before the elder. Verse 21, And Israel said unto Joseph, And by the way, Ephraim became a leading tribe in the northern kingdom and it much superior to the tribe of Manasseh, just as Jacob had predicted. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again unto the land of your fathers. You're not going to stay in Egypt, Joseph. God has a plan, and you will be coming. Your, your, this, this nation of Israel will be coming out of Egypt. Chapter 49, we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but I do urge you to go back, and especially as we get into Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, uh, story of Joshua, you, want to, uh, you might want to look at this. And what this is in chapter 49 is a, it's part blessing and part prophecy by Jacob over his sons, the sons of Israel. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days, or in the latter days, or after these days. And uh, this is worth reading, but tonight I'm only going to take the time to look at one tribe. And the reason for that is because we are following what? The seed. The seed of the woman, which has come all the way down now, to Jacob and now Jacob is talking about one tribe that is the tribe of Judah can I tell you that God already knew which tribe the first king of Israel would be of the tribe of Benjamin but God knew all the way back here in Genesis chapter 49 10 where Jacob says the scepter shall not depart from Judah so the first king was rejected and the second his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom the kingdom of David of the tribe of Judah so Genesis 49 10 the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be now I'm going to take a little time here and I'm going to go a little extra biblical on you getting into the Talmud which is basically a, a series of arguments recorded by the rabbis about the Torah, about the law for the ancient rabbis. So it gives us a view of what they believed. Um, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And also there's a historian, a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, who wrote about the time of a little after Jesus Christ. And because of that, there he actually recorded certain uh, things about the Lord Jesus Christ and about this subject that we're going to talk about right now. But the term scepter was thought by the ancient rabbis, according to the Talmud, to refer to their tribal identity and, most importantly, the right to apply and enforce mosaic laws and capital offenses. In other words, the scepter, in their mind, remained with Israel or Judah for as long as they had the right to apply the death penalty as a sovereign nation. And they believed that once they could no longer apply the death penalty, they were no longer sovereign in any way, 
and the scepter had departed. Now the term Shiloh here was understood uh, by the Talmudic authorities as referring to the Messiah. So they believed that Judah would continue to have the scepter, the right to take a life and enforce the law of Moses uh, until the Messiah came. Now, a little history here in 627 A.D. So this is the time of Christ, who we believe, looking at the calendar, was born somewhere around 4 A.D. You can wonder about that, because I can tell you he wasn't born at 4 A.D., but according to our calendar, that's probably where he's actually born. But in 627 A.D., King Herod's son, and this is the King Herod who tried to have the Messiah exterminated. And his successor is Herod Archelaus. He was dethroned and banished to Vienna, which is a city in Gaul. And Archelaus was the second son of Herod the Great. He was replaced by a Roman procurator named Caponius. So he was removed from office. And the legal power of the Sanhedrin, now the Sanhedrin is the ruling body of Israel. And those are the ones that we will see who bring Jesus to judgment. And they uh, condemn him. They actually have a, a, a trial that's completely against the law of Moses. And they uh, condemn him for, uh, you know, for claiming to be the Messiah. Well, they no longer had the right to kill him. They could not just take him out and stone him because the scepter had been taken away from them. They had to go to the Roman government. They had to go to Pilate, and they had to plead with him to uh, be able to put him to death. So the ruling body of Israel was restricted, and the right of the nation of Israel to judge their capital cases was removed. They could not put a man or a woman to death. In fact, when they brought the adulterous woman to the feet of Jesus, they had no authority whatsoever to stone her. And this was a trick that they were trying to play on Jesus Christ. And of course, he sent them walking away in shame. Uh, but this was normal Roman policy to take away the death penalty from a nation that they conquered. And this transfer of power is mentioned in the Talmud and by Josephus, the Jewish historian. I said all that to say this. When the members of the Sanhedrin found themselves stripped of the right to life and death, to take a life according to the Mosaic law, they covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth. They believed that the word of God had been broken. The prophecy did not come true. The word of God had been broken. They paraded their sorrow, weeping in the streets of Jerusalem and throughout Israel because the scepter had departed, but the Messiah had not come. This is in the Talmud. This is history. This happened. But may I say that they were very wrong. The scepter had been removed from Judah, from Israel, but Shiloh had come. While the Jews wept in the streets of Jerusalem, a young son of a carpenter by the name of Yeshua was growing up in Nazareth. And he would soon present himself as the Messiah, the son of David of the tribe of Judah, the king of the Jews. Can I tell you that the Bible will never be broken. The word of God will stand for all eternity. Heaven and earth will pass away. But the word of God will not pass away. And we come to the death of Jacob in chapter, in chapter 49, verse 33. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. I want you to clap your hands because we are at the final chapter <laughs> of the book of Genesis. Hallelujah. And Joseph fell upon his father's face, chapter 50, verse 1, and wept upon him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, 
to embalm his father and the physicians embalmed Israel. If we ever find the body of Jacob buried at the cave of Machpelah, it's probably pretty well preserved. He's, a, he's an Egyptian mon- mummy. Isn't that interesting? And 40 days were fulfilled for him, for so are fulfilled the days of those which are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him three score and ten days. Now, it, it's just amazing to think that Jacob is probably still out there. He's not dust. He is a mummy. He's wrapped up. And I would love to see that. If, if you know, King Tut, not so worried about it, But if you go around with J- Jacob on display, I'm paying the money. I'm flying out there. I want to see that display. <laughs> Praise the Lord. There are a couple of those I'd like to see. Uh, and when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spake unto the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found grace in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Lo, I die. In my grave, which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan, there shalt thou bury me. Now therefore let me go up, I pray thee, and bury my father, and I will come again. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury thy father according as he made thee swear. So they carry the body of Jacob to Canaan and bury him in the cave of Machpelah. Now that their father is dead, they're a little worried. Okay, now this is Joseph's time to strike. Jacob's dead. Maybe we need to go and have a little conversation with him. And they, they have a conversation saying, you know, Dad said you need to forgive us. <laughs> Dad said, don't hold our sin against us, all the wrong that we did for you. And they fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we're your servants. Verse 19, and Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? I love this verse. You may come up on people who hate you and treat you evil, your own brothers, your own sisters. It can happen, which is why we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen. We don't leave because there's so many hypocrites in the church. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Frankly, the only place for hypocrites to be are in the church. If they weren't in church, they wouldn't be hypocrites. Amen. But this is what Joseph said. But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good to bring it to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. God opens doors that no man can shut. He closes doors that no man can open. If God has a calling on your life, the door will open. And everyone trying to shut that door will do nothing more than the will of God. To cause that door to open in your life. That's how it is. I've said it before. There is no creature in the entire universe who has done more of the will of God than Satan himself. He did it shaking his fist at the king of the universe. But everything he did, including the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, led to his downfall and to the victory of Jesus. That's the same way it is with you. Isn't that wonderful to know? So bring it on. Do your best. You're not fighting against me. You're fighting against God. Amen. If I am in the will of God. Praise God. Sometimes you might be fighting against me because I'm just a carnal man and I I drink too many monsters, Sister Lonnie, and lose my temper. I talked to the pastor about that earlier. So, and Joseph dwelt in Egypt, 22. And he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's, Joseph's knees. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land, unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin, a coffin, a coffin in Egypt. I actually think that may be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Why? Because Genesis began with life. 
It began with creation and now ends with a coffin. Something that should never have been. We have come to the end of this book. The book of Genesis. Bereshit in the beginning. It began with life, perfection, and goodness. It began with the Creator who made man in His own image. Man to live eternally with Him. Man to rule over the earth and to have dominion over the entire earth. Man created in the very image of God. But then, we saw how the enemy was introduced. Uh, The enemy, the old serpent, the devil who came into the garden of God, who challenged the word of God that God had spoken to Adam. When God said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. But Satan caused Eve to doubt the Word of God. And that's what he does to you. Once she doubted the Word of God, Satan then contradicted the Word. That's the same tactic he uses today against the church. He questions, Hath God said? And he sows doubt. And then when the doubt is sown into the heart... He contradicts the word by saying, you shall not surely die. Let me tell you, it is the word of God that's going to keep us. That's why we need to know the word of God. Pastor spoke about it last Wednesday. We must know the word of God. If you don't, you are in a sword fight with a master. And you've never even been to boot camp. We must have and know and understand the Word of God. Satan is a liar. And God's Word is and always have, has been true. And because of the sin of Adam and Eve, death entered into the world. Man is born now to die. Eternal life is no longer his. And something altogether terrible happened. Man had dominion, rulership, headship over the earth, and he transferred that to the devil. This is a very important thing for us to understand. The devil became the legal ruler of this world. That's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, In their case, the God, little g, of this world, the ruler, the magistrate of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now, how is Satan the God of this world? John 12.31 Calls Satan the prince of this world. And prince is not in the Bible the son of a king. Prince means ruler. Uh, It's basically the title of a king. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. So he's not only a prince, but he's a prince of the power of the air, which are the rulers of darkness, spiritual rulers. Wickedness, where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That is the structure of the ruling kingdom and hierarchy of this planet. That's where we're at. The question is often asked in the world today, especially when tragedy happens, and we just had a terrible tragedy, and of course the first thing that you see is the question, why? Why and where is God? And it's a legitimate question. It was my son, my daughter, I would question why. And I would probably say, where is God? Why does he allow this to happen? Understand this, we are living in a world 
that is under the control of a kingdom of darkness. Because of sin, the sin that happened in Genesis chapter 1, we live in futility, subject to the wages of sin, which is death, which is controlled by Satan. And controlled by Satan, death reigned. Now, I'm going to say that in the past tense because that's the way it was. Praise God. It's not my intention to be macabre, but can I tell you, we will all one day die unless the Lord comes and takes us out of here. Everyone we know and everyone we love will one day die. Life in this fallen world inevitably ends with the coffin just as Genesis began with life and ends with the coffin that's the way of this kingdom under the control of Satan and his and his angels in this present age the present kingdom you may rise to the very top of the economic world the top of the social ladder you may gain the whole world but it's Feudal. It's temporary. The richest, most powerful men on earth will succumb to age and death. Their stories, no matter how grand, will end in a coffin. They will watch the ones they love die or the ones they love will see their end. And that is how it ends. That is as good as it gets in this present kingdom. Boy, brothers... Ricky Taylor, that, that wasn't very uplifting. But can I tell you, there's another kingdom. That's right. <laughs> Why we pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It's not a pretty prayer. It's a cry. Because that kingdom will finally replace this one. A kingdom ruled by the king. The scepter that will never end. In that kingdom there's no darkness. But he is the light. There's no sickness. There's no sorrow. There's no parting. There's no war. There's no famine. There's no want. There is no death. You'll never say goodbye to your loved one. And they'll never say goodbye to you. And his kingdom will never have an end. He shall reign forever and ever that is the kingdom you and I as Christians belong to and I pray whenever I see tragedy my prayer is may this present world with its misery sinfulness evil deeds darkness sorrow and inevitable death finally pass away and may his kingdom come his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The book of Genesis and the present world can be summed up by what occurred in Genesis chapter 3. There were two seeds mentioned by God. The seed of the serpent, the serpent who currently rules the planet, and the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who defeated the serpent. His own hill bruised but crushing the serpent's head and he is preparing even now to take over the earth he purchased the deed that's what we see in the book of revelation where no man can open the scroll that scroll is the deed to planet earth and the lamb is the only one who can open it he's the only one with the right to planet earth he purchased it with his blood and he's preparing to come and take the land that he purchased to destroy this present evil kingdom and to replace it with his own kingdom. This is what we and all creation are longing for. We're going to see each other for all eternity. <laughs> I was young, but now I am old. That's what the writer of...
Ecclesiastes, King Solomon said. Can I tell you, he also said, everything under the sun is vanity, futility, vexation of spirit. That means everything apart from God. Everything in this natural world, in this natural order, this age. And the older I get, the more I long to see him. That's my longing, and I say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for thy word. We thank you for your people. God, thank you for visiting us here. Thank you for allowing us to come to this place to learn the word of God. And we continue next week in the book of Exodus. And I ask that you illuminate our understanding as we come to your glorious word, Lord, the salvation, the bringing out of the people of Israel by the water, the spirit, and the blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a little time. You'll want to read at least the first two chapters of the book of Exodus to prepare for next Monday. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart.